From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other and all points in between, the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. And now, your host, Jeremy Lunnan. Yeah, we don't know anything about that fellow there. Who is he? Where's he coming from? It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. And finally, the time has come. It's the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm super excited today. Uh, you, you got some big testicles to pull this off, bro. Well, thank you. So, the most important thing uh, you gotta remember is, yeah. you know, okay, so... So some, so some so people were you know they were doing some stuff and then they, and then other people were like hey don't do that stuff and then other people were like hey yeah they should do you know that stuff it's good that they're doing that stuff and what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that uh, in conclusion I have no idea what we've got here is. Failure to communicate. Well, that seems like nitpicking. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy. Very excited about our show today. Today we are going to talk about an album that that always alternates between my number one and number two favorite of all time. We're going to be talking about Blizzard of Oz today. Just a, a landmark album, huge album, very important album. And I'm doubly excited because I'm bringing some friends onto the show. We've had John join us before. John uh, hosts the Lair of the Alchemist channel on YouTube. And then he and his buddy Darren host an excellent podcast called Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. And simultaneously, we were kind of uh, talking about Blizzard of Oz. So I reached out to John and I said, hey, I know you guys just did an episode on this, but could you come on and you and Darren talk about Blizzard of Oz on this podcast as well? They, these guys know their stuff. They aren't riddled with ADD to ex the extent that I am. <laughs> so it'll be great to have their insight on this album. It's going to be a, going to be a lot of fun. So stick around for that. But before we bring John and Darren on and talk about Blizzard of Oz, I want to congratulate the winners of our dick pick giveaway. Yes. Yes. These guys got dick picks starter pack, uh, dick picks. If you're not aware, don't worry, this is still a family show. Dick Picks is a guitar pick company out of Australia, and they make awesome guitar picks. Uh, you can check out their website at dickpicks.com.au. We had a little contest on the last episode. Check out the last episode. And our winners are Jeff Buchel in Joliet, Illinois, 
Dave Collinson from Sandy, Oregon. Two winners from Oklahoma, Will Hines and J.R. Stanton. And Dave Barnes from Hershey, Pennsylvania. Those guys all picked up a really cool starter pack from dickpicks.com. Again, check them out. The website actually, dickpicks.com.au. Great Australian company, great guys to work with, and they do have international shipping available. So even if you're in the U.S. or outside of Australia, you can get those uh, dick pics shipped out to you, and they are awesome. When we come back, we'll introduce you to John and Darren, and we're going to talk about the phenomenal Ozzy Osbourne Blizzard of Oz album, right here on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Attention, if you live in Spokane, Washington and have teeth, this message is for you. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry knows teeth. Incisors, bicuspids, canines, molars. No tooth is too big or too small. I was delighted and impressed. So impressed, I bought the company. With Braun and Jarvis, you'll have the sweetest grill in the inland northwest. And let's be honest, nobody wants a funky grill. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry. 509-464-2391. That's 509-464-2391. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry. Quality dentistry that doesn't suck. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. And as mentioned today, we are looking at one of the iconic albums, one of my favorite albums of all time. We're talking, of course, about Wizard of Oz from 1980. And as promised, we have some friends on today, John and Darren, who host Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast, which I highly recommend. If you are a fan of Sabbath or even just a fan of classic rock in general, you will enjoy this their podcast, and I would, I would point you in that direction. So, guys, thanks so much for being here. And I know you're both huge Sabbath fans, but I just love to hear kind of your own history, your your first exposure to Blizzard, and kind of what it, it meant to you. And Darren, maybe we'll start with you. Okay. Well, I'll try not to be too long winded. My first exposure to Ozzy and Black Sabbath was via the rock magazines like Hit Parader, Circus, and Cream. And as a kid, I would see them, you know, in convenience stores and grocery stores, gas stations, and so on and so forth. And that was sort of like my rock and roll lifeline. Every All the information that I got came from those magazines, as well as the advertisements for, you know, records that were coming out soon and things like that. That, that was my lifeline. So, when I became aware of the Ozzy Blizzard of Oz record to be coming soon, it was via an ad in, I think it 
was probably Circus Magazine. It was about a postage, as I've said before, it was about a postage size picture of the cover. So it was really hard to make out what was going on. But, it, you know, the title of it was cool. The description was brief, but it was Ozzy Osbourne, former lead singer of Black Sabbath, which, you know, I, I had some experience with Black Sabbath. When Never Say Die came out, that was my first Black Sabbath album. I didn't really make me a fan because I, I think it was a little too sophisticated for the age that I was. I was nine years old, so I think a lot of it went kind of over my head. But I, I really liked Ozzy's voice. So that was something that I was able to connect with uh, with the Black Sabbath. Maybe not the, the music so much, but I really liked Ozzy's voice. So when I saw that Ozzy was coming out with the solo album, it piqued my curiosity. Also through these magazines, uh, the press was starting to report, you know, some of the feuding that was going on or some of the back and forth between Ozzy and Sabbath. So now I was really starting to see pictures of Ozzy, Tony Iommi, Ronnie James Dio, Sabbath on stage, Ozzy on stage. But there wasn't a lot of current Ozzy material in these magazines. It was mostly older stuff, older pictures of Black Sabbath while Ozzy was in the band, but new pictures of Black Sabbath while Dio was in the band. And I thought the Dio fronted Sabbath looked pretty cool, but I also thought the Ozzy fronted Sabbath looked pretty cool too. And the pictures of Ozzy, he just sort of had this maniacal look about him. He looked like the, the consummate, the quintessential rock star with the hair and the, the stage clothes and things like that. So as things started to progress and these articles started to come out, and the feuding and so on and so forth, it almost, the way that it was presented was in a tit-for-tat kind of way. Sabbath said this, Ozzy said that, and it left it up to the readers to basically formulate what side you're on. So I took in the information and the pictures and all the, uh, everything that I could, and I decided that I was going to be on Team Ozzy. So I eagerly awaited, you know, this Blizzard of Oz album to come out. But at, at this point, it hadn't yet been released in the U.S. So the next thing is, a few months later, I heard an advertisement on the radio for Ozzy coming around on the Blizzard of Oz tour. And I heard a couple snippets from some of the new songs, just a couple seconds. But it was enough that, you know, I was definitely interested. Well, not long after that. I went to uh, my favorite record store. I guess it was probably in the mall. And lo and behold, there it was on the wall. And I saw it, you know, in all its 12 by 12 glory. The album cover, you know, the picture of Ozzy, you know, the, the, the dry ice, you know, his wild eyes, the cape, mm. the cross held high, the cat in the corner, all these, all these images on this one album cover that were just fascinating to me as, as a 12 year old right so so i snapped it right up and i took it home and put it on and from the second that i heard whatever effect it is that i don't know begins with maybe it's a backward symbol or some kind of a whooshing sound when it just started to like achieve liftoff and then that guitar kicked in and man, I, I was hooked i was absolutely sold i i had never heard guitar like that really i mean i was familiar with van halen and i've heard you know eddie van halen's style and, and i guess that was probably about the closest thing that i can compare it to but it it just had a kind of a darker tone and then of course ozzy's vocals kicked in with that that wail of his that tone that he had and the lyrics 
I was hooked and from song to song. I, I was just, you know, I was mesmerized. Yeah. And it's like John and I talked about before. I just listened to that album all the time. I come up from school, you know, I lay on my bed, I take the album cover, I'd either stare at the album cover, I take the inner sleeve out, either look at the logo, flip it over, read all the lyrics. I mean, I became so familiar with this album that I knew every little nuance, every little every little thing that happened on this album. You know, we talk about, or maybe we will talk about some of the little gremlins and little mm -hmm. voices in the background, you know, all that stuff. It just built into the atmosphere and whatever pictures I hadn't yet seen of Ozzy on stage or, or any of the visual accompaniments that were kind of absent at that time to correspond with this album, I would make up in my head, you know, right. based yeah. on, I mean, as a kid, I mean, I just put myself totally into it. You know, the music just built an atmosphere that I can, I can build on with my imagination. And man, I, it was, it was a really big milestone in my life at the time. That was awesome. Uh, John, I want, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right now that our experience are all going to be almost identical, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah. John, let's, let's kind of ha hear your exposure. Yeah. To Wizard of Mine was a little different <clears throat> than Darren. I didn't have any access to any magazines or anything, but I had already had uh, paranoid. I started getting into, you know, hard rock and heavy metal about the middle of 1980 with ACDC back in black. And then not too long after that, I got paranoid and I started hearing uh, Crazy Train and, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe I don't know on the radio. And not too long after I heard this, he was like, wow, you know, Ozzy's got a, Ozzy has a solo album. And uh, <clears throat> I tell this story on our podcast that there was a, there was a kid at, at my school, my grade school went to eighth grade and I was in fifth grade at the time. And somebody's older brother had the album. And he was an eighth grader. He had the record and he was going to let everybody look at the record. <laughs> and when school was over and uh, I could take you back, if, if that building is still there, I could show you exactly where this happened. Because at this point I had heard paranoid, but I had seen very little pictures of Ozzy. I kind of knew what he looked like. I was hearing this stuff from a solo album. So this eighth grader, all the other eighth graders made a perimeter around them, like at the secret service or something to keep all the other kids back. He said, all right, I'm going to pull this out of my bag and uh, you can't touch it. You could just look at it. Don't say anything. Just look at it. <laughs> so he pulled it out of his bag and just slowly sort of turned around and all of our you know, jaws just hit. And, you know, I had to immediately then go out and get it myself. I, you know, I got it on cassette and, and, you know, this is a very, special album for me from the minute that I heard it. Uh, if, if I trace back all the things, the things that I love in heavy metal and hard rock, you know, the medieval classical vibe. Okay. That came from Blizzard of Oz, you know, uh, Mr. Crowley and Revelation Mother Earth. Uh, the melodicism, you know, I related to it because I was listening to ACDC and some Kiss at the time. So it was melodic, yet it still had this, this darker overtone to it. I, I missed out on Ozzy and Black Sabbath, but here I was for Ozzy solo. Randy Rhodes was my guy. <clears throat> he checked off all the boxes for me. He was melodic. He was technical. I had heard Eddie Van Halen at that point. And I liked Eddie Van Halen, but Eddie Van Halen seemed a little bit more 
like he was winging a lot of his guitar solos, as great as they are. But Randy, to me, seemed more structured and melodic. I just totally got into that. The album cover, uh, you know, again, these are things that to this day, if I see an album cover with dry ice on it, I get all, <laughs> my heart rate increases, you know, and it's because of that, that album, you know, the atmosphere of Ozzy on the front of that, it had a real you know, mystery to it. And uh, it's just a fantastic album. And like Darren, it's something that, you know, I know every nook and cranny of it. Uh, it, it holds a very, very special, uh, very special place in my heart. Yeah. I kind of grew up, I think, knowing what I know about you, John, you grew up in a rural area in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I was in a very rural area in Western Montana and didn't have access to magazines, you know, and, and, and my exposure was we had an hour long bus ride every day and an hour and a half to get home every day. And the cool kids, the older kids, uh, they'd bring tapes. And there's one kid, especially named Tony, that was always he exposed me to Iron Maiden. He was always up on the, the new the new wave of British heavy metal before they called it that. Right. He was always Motorhead and all this. So. He has this Ozzy Osbourne tape that we listened to in the bus driver, old guy named Glenn, but he, he would let us play our tapes in the bus's tape deck. And so we listened <laughs> to Blizzard of Oz all day going to school. And I remember in the fall, so this would have been 81, right? So in the yeah, fall of yeah. 81, like you, you know, maybe once every two months, we'd go into the big city, which is actually where I live now, Spokane. So we drive 120 miles from, you know, BFE in Western Montana into Spokane. And I went to the record store. This would have been November, early December of 81 with the intent of buying Blizzard of Oz. Well, when I got there, they just so happened to have a big cutout of Ozzy for Diary of a Madman. It had just come out. And I thought, man, I'll be cooler with the cool kids if I buy Diary because no one has that one. So I actually bought Diary first and brought it home. Yeah. And I took it to school. I didn't make everyone, you know, <laughs> the same type of deal, right? Took it on the bus and showed it to the cool kids. They're like, whoa, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> and then I didn't get Blizzard until a little after the fact, but I've been listening to it on the bus every day. But like you guys, uh, you you use the word every nook and cranny. I knew like you guys, every nook and cranny. And I would say, I think I'm about three years older than you guys. My, my sophomore year of high school. So this would have been like 82. I can guarantee you, I listened to this album at least once every day, my entire sophomore year, you know, <laughs> yeah. get home from school, put on the headphones and listen to it. And I listened to diary too, but for whatever reason, this is the one that really, for many of the same reasons that you guys have mentioned, I, I first, Darren, I mentioned on the, the last podcast where we had John on how magical the summer of 77 was for me, right? That was, I was 10 years old. Star Wars came out. I bought my first record player. That, I mean, the family had a record player, but my folks actually bought me a record player from a yard sale. It was actually a pretty nice record player. And my brother had borrowed paranoid and alice cooper goes to hell from his friend and so that was the summer of star wars and paranoid it's just a wonderful yeah. summer right so i i knew of black sabbath 
And when I heard of this new album and hearing it on the bus, I knew I had to have it. And I can remember, again, kids today, they don't know how good they have it. But remember when we came up, there was no internet, right? You might see a magazine. We never saw pictures. My gosh, they did a thing on entertainment tonight about Ozzy. And mm. everyone was like calling everyone, you got to watch entertainment tonight. tonight. And, and we saw yeah. a five-minute thing about Ozzy on entertainment tonight. And that's all we talked about the next you know week. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I remember watching that. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think the, the episode of the day before, the night before, I think it was on like at 7 o'clock. I don't know how I remember that. But entertainment tonight. And uh, they said, tomorrow, coming soon, tomorrow show. And they had a little bit, you know, a couple seconds of Ozzy on stage with the castle and everything. And I made sure I tuned in the next night. And actually, it wasn't that much longer than the commercial for Exactly. You know, I mean, it's something because, you know, uh, back then, Ozzy was was, you know, this is for younger people out there. They they maybe find this a little hard to believe because Ozzy's such the name. He's such a public right. figure now, uh, you know, thanks to the reality TV and all that stuff. But back then he was dangerous, man. I mean, he yeah. was, he was yeah. scary. He was mysterious. He was dangerous. He was, so when they would talk to me, I love, you see those really early 80, 81, 82 interviews with Ozzy, you know, and he says, and he'll start it off saying stuff. Look, we advise if you're if you're pregnant or have any mental disorders, you know, the Ozzy Osbourne uh, company says, do not come to our show. It is not safe for your health. And I mean, this yeah. was all. And of course, it's, it's, it's like that old thing in school where somebody tells a story. And by the time it you get to the 50th bigger. person, totally. it's completely different. Well, these yeah. Ozzy stories about what is happening at his shows and he's so dangerous. He's so mysterious. And the album covers played into this, this totally this creepy you know mysterious vibe the the songs and everything i mean there was really something you know something around that and it added a lot of uh mystery and excitement to the whole thing yeah and and you know with there, there's always somebody up to this point that was the bad boy the the shock rock icon mm-hmm. and prior to Ozzy. And it's really kind of strange because it almost seems as though Ozzy sort of fell into this accidentally because his his image in Black Sabbath wasn't really anything particularly dark or occult. I mean, the, the lyrics were to a degree, but Ozzy didn't really have that Prince of Darkness persona so much in Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really think. That was something that was created during the early part of his solo career. And by early, I mean, 1981 up until 1982. Right. But, uh, you, you know, so Alice Cooper preceded Ozzy as the, the dark figure, the dangerous rock star icon person. And in order for Ozzy to move on from that, there had to be some some folklore. There had to be some rumors. There had to be something that made him just a little bit more dangerous than Alice Cooper. And I think, and, and we didn't mention this, John, when we, we did our, our podcast, but if you remember the bat or the, the dove incident where he right. was at the press conference and he pulled and Sharon decided yeah. that it would be a good idea if he went into the press conference and let loose these doves. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I think he let one loose and the other one he took out of his pocket and he sat down next to a woman and he bit the head off. Well, (laughs) at that time, I mean, had anybody ever heard of of that sort of a thing? 
taking place. And, and it was pretty unprecedented. Add in the fact that there was a photographer to capture it and Rolling Stone printed the photo. And you yeah. could see Ozzy with his eyes crossed and yeah. a little bit of blood dripping down from his <laughs> yeah. chin, holding the decapitated bird in one hand. And man, all right. He, he just upped the ante from Alice Cooper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the next step after Alice Cooper. Yep. Yeah. And we and this show in no way condones uh, cruelty to animals. But oh, I, <laughs> I totally, I totally remember that. And a, a funny thing, I saw Ozzy in June of 1982. It was the Diary Tour. This is after Randy Rhodes died. So Brad Gillis was on guitar. So June of 82. Is that what? Yeah. So that was June my first of, I, I, it was April for me. I think it was April 22nd. It was shortly after Brad Gillis joined. But yeah, was yeah, it, it was my first time the UFO opened. Was Axe and Saxon opening? Do you remember? No. It was there? Magnum. Magnum opened the show and then UFO and then oh, Ozzy. I would have loved to see it with UFO. When I saw him, it was... Uh, Actually, it was just Axe. Axe opened and then the show. But but I can remember going to that show. I kind of had to sneak with my older brother again because all the press, we were so starved for, for information that you think rumors are bad on the Internet. To, to your point, John, right? You know, I was expecting Ozzy to blow up cows on stage, and I, you know, <laughs> just based on everything I'd heard, yeah. right? And I can remember, and again, coming from a very conservative religious family, I get to the the Coliseum and there's like protesters there protesting him. There are religious protesters, there are animal rights protesters. I mean, it's, it's a big deal. I'm like, oh, what am I getting myself into? Maybe I shouldn't go. And none of that happened, of course. The worst thing that happened was he hung a midget. Right. You remember that part there? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ronnie, Ronnie, the Ronnie, midget. the midget. Yes. But great show. And that was one of the, it wasn't the first show I went to, but, but one of the first concerts I went to. And to this day, uh, did you buy a program from that concert, Darren? If you remember, I if did. You, and I, I have it over in a drawer. I could probably, I could I, show it to you. I got mine somewhere and, and, and it's still got Randy Rhodes in the program. Right. Yeah. 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 So I have that same program, but that was again, Part of that whole mystique, the 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 Prince of Darkness, the Madman, and uh, you know, I think a lot of these things were done. I don't know if intentionally is. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. So another here's another thing, and I know I'm kind of jumping all over. I moved the summer of '82, so I saw Ozzy in June of '82. Moved back to Oklahoma because I'd lived in Oklahoma before going to Montana. Moved back to Oklahoma. So this is like August of 82, and I happened to be in a bike store, and I heard a guy who the night before had been to the Texas Jam, and it was at the Texas Jam that Ozzy first revealed his bald head. Oh, If you guys remember, speak of the devil, his crew cut was starting to grow out, but he shaved his head, and apparently it was the Texas Jam where he comes out and he starts and he's got a big, no one knew it at the time. He just had a big wig on. And then yeah. like three songs into the show, he just pulls his hair off and he's bald and everyone's like, <laughs> you know? And so that all, that kind of stuff all just added to this mystique. I remember seeing a picture of Ozzy on the cover of circus magazine or shortly after he shaved his head and he, they painted him up with, they gave him the Mickey Mouse widow's peak, I guess, for lack of a better word. And they put 
big balloons on either side of his head. So he looked like Mickey Mouse and he dressed him in a tuxedo. And I'm like, oh, my God, what? I mean, I had to wrap my head around. And I'm like this. This guy that I, I thought looked so cool with the long hair and the <laughs> sign and the fringe yeah. and, you know, and all the things that were associated with his image prior to this had now all been flushed. I'm like, my God, right. what what did they do to Ozzy? But I mean, it was all just an extension of his unpredictable behavior you right. know the, the mad shaving mad. the head yeah, you know yeah. crazy mad man it, it almost like it further validated if anybody were to think that oh this is just a shtick you know this he's not he's he probably goes home and and relaxes with a pipe and reads a book uh no probably not he probably goes <laughs> home and shaves his head and then you know he eats eats birds or something yeah. you know it, it all sort of validated and that was really important for that image which was such a a large part of, of who Ozzy, of, of his identity. It, it was important that it wasn't just uh, something that seemed like publicity stunt or, or something. It seemed like, yeah, this guy's really crazy. Yeah, exactly. And, and that summer, something about that summer of 82, because the whole Alamo thing happened that same summer. That was all yeah. within the space of a few months. He, he, he bit the dove. He bit a bat that someone threw up on a stage. He yeah. peed on the Alamo. He shaved his head. So, yeah, he's doing everything he can to look like he's he truly is a, a man. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was on a roll. He was yeah. On a roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, John, OK, I want to I want to go back. And you guys talked about this really well. But I, I, I want to spend some time talking about the early days. Ozzy's kicked out of Sabbath. He lives in L.A. And my understanding, he's kind of like living in a hotel. Right. He's just staying in a hotel. And yeah. so, John, kind of talk us through that period of time. And specifically, I want to hear your thoughts on Sharon during this time of Ozzy's life. And, and what do you think the role is that she played in all of this? Yeah, this whole era, this whole time frame for Ozzy is a little cloudy. I encourage people out there to get Bob Daisley's book for facts sake. Bob Daisley was uh, the bass player on uh, a big songwriter, lyricist on many of the Ozzy albums. And he was there very early on in all this. And he kept diaries and notes and dates and all that kind of stuff. But basically... So if you go back just a little bit, uh, between the Black Sabbath albums, Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die, Ozzy leaves, and I'm condensing the story. Right. Ozzy leaves the band. He wants to start his own band. In fact, you can see pictures of Ozzy from this era with a Blizzard of Oz homemade shirt on that his, his, was his father's idea. You should call the band, that your solo band, the Blizzard of Oz doesn't happen for him between technical ecstasy and never say die. So he comes back to Sabbath. They do never say die. They tour, never say die. And then he gets kicked out of the band. He's splitting his time between uh, England and LA where in England, he, he, he kind of has some guys he's working with when he's in LA. It should also be noted that he's being managed at this point by Don Arden. Don Arden was managing black Sabbath but now Ozzy leaves, Don goes with Ozzy. Uh, Don Arden is Sharon Osborne at that time, Sharon Arden, that's her father. So her connection, so Ozzy's in Europe trying to sort of, he's in England trying to do it. He's also in, in LA. 
so Sharon's part of this really, to my understanding, when you read the other people's accounts of this, she's working for her father and she was really just to sort of check in on him every now and then. Now, mm-hmm. how much she was involved, I get the impression that she wasn't involved at all in the putting together of this band. She was just somebody that was a go between, you know, between the, the record label and Ozzy. Also, for people out there that really want to hear this story from the source, I I encourage them to look up on YouTube, Dana Strum. Mm -hmm. Dana Strum would go on to play bass for uh, Vinnie Vincent Invasion and Slaughter. And when Ozzy was in L.A., he meets Dana Strum. He tells Dana, hey, I've got this list of guitar players that the record company wants me to look at. Uh, I want Gary Moore. That was Ozzy's first pick. And, and Dana says, Gary Moore is an amazing player, but he's not right for this situation. Uh, so Dana strikes up this agreement with Ozzy that, all right, I'll take you to see these guys on this list, but the guy for your band is Randy Rhodes. Right. Randy Rhodes at this time, for those who may not know, is playing guitar in Quiet Riot. This is the pre-metal uh, health Quiet Riot. Quiet Riot is a popular on the Sunset Strip band. They had two albums that they put out that were only released in Japan, but basically Randy isn't known outside of the Sunset Strip, but Dana knows him from that. Dana arranges this meet this uh, meetup. Again, Dana goes into great detail with this, with one of the best Aussie impersonations I think I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> Ozzy hears him. He goes back to England. He lands up meeting Bob Daisley at like a record release party for a band that's on Jet Records. Jet Records being the label that is Ozzy's on. Bob Daisley used to be in a band called Widowmaker that was on Jet Records. Bob Daisley's just left Rainbow. Ozzy and Bob meet up at this party. They go back to Ozzy's place in England. He says, I've got these guys. They go back. These guys aren't cutting it. Bob says, these guys aren't cutting it. You got to get rid of these guys. Ozzy gets rid of him. He says, I've got this kid from LA. And he says, fly him over. So really the bulk of the album is written with Ozzy, Randy, and Bob. Lee Kerslake doesn't come into the picture till much later after auditioning a ton of drummers. The last guy to come in is Lee Kerslake. Lee Kerslake having been in Uriah Heap. And then it's it, it all falls into place. And really, if you listen to Bob tell the story, really Sharon was just somebody who showed up every now and then and just, hey, how's it going? Checked in on things and would leave. Ozzy was married at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hadn't really struck up any kind of relationship or maybe, I don't know, maybe it was starting at that point. But, but she wasn't involved in putting the band together. She wasn't there when Ozzy auditioned Randy. She wasn't there when Ozzy met Bob, when they were rehearsing at Ridge Farm Studios, you know, getting all this stuff together. You know, I don't think she really comes into it until once they start recording and start getting ready to, to tour. And that's, so that's kind of the whole thing in yeah, a nut, quick yeah, little no, nutshell. That's, <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted. And, and that's one of the confusing things is because Sharon will talk about how, Oh, Blizzard Vaz was the greatest. And she didn't have anything to do with, she wasn't at Ridge yeah. farm. She was there, but, but the only thing I wanted to give her props for, and this is my understanding, this is coming from, I believe an Aussie interview where Aussie's, frame of mind was not the best. And he would talk about maybe even Dana Strum mentions this. 
he's in an apartment with booze bottles and empty pizza boxes. You know, that's kind of what it is. And, and, and to your point, Sharon's main role at this point was just babysitting Ozzy in a lot of ways, you know, checking up. I think it was really more just like checking in on him. And she certainly may have, I mean, who knows, she may have been like, Hey, you got to get your act together. You know, she may have been sort of trying to encourage him because he was on the label and he was, that was her job to make sure that he was getting out of bed and getting this album going. Yeah. That was the thing. He, Don Arden put Ozzy on a salary. He, Mm -hmm. he signed Ozzy to uh, jet records. And so she basically was on assignment from her father. Like, you better make sure that, that he stays alive. Yeah, yeah. And she would check in. She knew where he was. Uh, they put him up at the hotel. So she would check in, and, you know, make sure that, that he got up, make sure that he wasn't had no deed and that he was moving towards getting this band together to ultimately release this album. Right. And um, and that was her job. I, she, it wasn't as though she was managing. She was working for her father to make sure that her father's investment was going to make good on the money they were spending on him. Right. So, so. Dar- Darren, do you know, and, and Gary Moore was was also managed by Don Arden. So that's how all of this was kind of all connected. But do you know any details or either of you know any details about my understanding is Gary kind of supported Ozzy in that he would help him audition other players. So Gary Moore was kind of involved, but from the beginning he was saying, I don't want to be in the band, but there was a relationship there with Ozzy and Gary. And didn't Gary have some sort of role in this, the early stages here? Well, I know that Gary didn't want to get involved with Ozzy because he had a a relationship prior to, to that, to him going solo with Phil Linnett, you know, Mm -hmm. and Phil Linnett was, he had a problem with drugs, as we all know. I mean, ultimately, mm-hmm. he he died from that. Um, so he didn't, you know, he was very wary of getting involved with Ozzy. And I just don't think that the situation was really appealing to him. You know, Gary had spent time in a band and it was time for him. He felt it was time for him to go solo and, you know, spread his wings and, and do his own thing. Beyond that, maybe John knows, I have heard that that Gary said, look, I'm not going to join your band. I'm not I'm not going to play in your band, but I will help you. Mm-hmm. I will help you find people. Mm-hmm. But the way that John explained it and the way that I understand it as well, I can't see where Gary would have been involved because Ozzy met Bob and the two of them jammed. They hit it off. Uh, the guys, as John said, I'm not going to go through the whole thing that John already did, but right. Ozzy meets Bob. Ozzy had met Randy in L.A. Jet Records, David Arden, I believe that's his name, flew Randy over to England. The three of them started playing. They wrote the the basic, they pretty much wrote the album. Lee comes in, you know, Bob meets Lee in 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 an elevator somewhere, asks Lee, hey, what have you been up to? Oh, I'm putting a band together and and you know it's got the singer from go west and we're 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 trying to get this together and bob says hey you know what you might be interested in this why don't you come by and i'll play you some of our stuff and lee comes over bob plays it for him lee says that hey, it's great i'll take a shot at it right so the three of them start to jam everything falls in place they find their drummer so there's the band ozzy finds randy through dana strum ozzy runs into bob bob runs into lee I, i'm not really sure what what gary would have done it could have been it could have been as little as that. I, I believe reading at some point the studio where Ozzy was kind of hanging out, where Dana was. I believe Gary Moore was there too, and and I think I just remember reading something about 
they would occasionally bring in and audition people with Gary and Gary would just help. Like you said, help. But yeah, yeah. Gary says that if you hear interviews with Gary and I have a feeling, I don't have any, I've never heard anybody say this, but I have a feeling that Gary is sort of the guy before Dana comes into the picture. Ozzy's sort of hanging around LA loosely meeting up with people. And Gary says from the beginning, from the, like Darren said, Gary didn't want to do it, but he was like Ozzy. So Gary has often said in interviews, if Ozzy would call me and say, Hey, I've got a drummer and a bass player. Can you come over and play? I've got a guitar player and a drummer. Can you come over and play bass? And he would just sort of help him, help him out when he could. And my feeling is, is that maybe Gary is somewhere involved in this sort of right before Dana Strum gets involved in it because Dana doesn't talk really about Gary Gary that much. Well, one thing, one thing that that's very interesting and, and Darren, you might remember this, John, you might too, but Darren sounds like he was more of a collector of magazines. There was that guitar player magazine that came out in November of 82, which was the tribute to Randy Rhodes. I have it somewhere. And basically it's just, it's not an interview. It is just a collection of quotes and comments from Randy, from Ozzy, from Rudy, from, from Max Norman, just it's the whole issue is dedicated to Randy Rhodes and all these various things. A few things jump out at me and you guys touched on it on your episode. And, and again, Darren, to your point, when you said Gary was probably hesitant to get involved with Ozzy and right now, you know, 30 years, 40 years later, huge name, Ozzy, everyone knows who Ozzy is, but at this time, 1980, 79, 80, he was uh damaged goods, right? So it wasn't like everyone yeah. was hankering to work with this guy. <laughs> right. uh, one of the things that was funny though, is I love this part. And Dana talks about it. Dana calls Randy and says, Hey, you know, you got to come and try out for this Ozzy Osbourne gig. And Randy was not a Sabbath fan. Randy was an Alice Cooper fan. Randy loved Alice Cooper. He loved David Bowie. He loved, he loved the, the glam rock. That was his thing. Right. And so he was never into Ozzy. <laughs> it just seems so ironic that, that Randy's big concern was, well, I don't have any gas money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. Dana says, okay, man, I'll, I'll spot you some gas money. <laughs> and so it sounds like you saw the video too. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I saw a video and I've read it in a couple of places where Randy's concern was the gas. Well, I don't know. That's a long ways to drive. (laughs) I don't have the gas. And it was really Randy's mom that that sort of, uh, you know, she tells the story often that Randy goes to this audition. He comes back. His mom says, well, what happened? And he's like, I don't know what happened. He goes, I just went in. I just sort of set up. I doodled around for a little bit, warmed up. And then they told me, okay, I got the job. job. And and his mom was like, well, are you going to do it? And he's like, you know, I don't know. I don't, he was really hesitant about taking it for some of the reasons you mentioned. He didn't, he didn't really know who Ozzy was. He didn't really like Black Sabbath. He had his band Quiet Riot. He was also, uh, he taught 
guitar at his mom's school with some like 50 plus students a week. And, and he seemed like he was content and it was really his mom that sort of pushed him like, you know, Randy, this is a higher profile thing. You should take this. It's a stepping stone. It's an opportunity to, to raise your, your uh, profile. So she, he was really, from what I understand from what I've heard from, from his mom, that he was real hesitant was kind of like, nah, I don't think I'm going to do it. You know, he just wasn't, he wasn't impressed by Ozzy. And like you mentioned, or I think Darren might've mentioned that, you know, at this point in time, Ozzy was kind of the last couple Sabbath albums didn't sell that well. Ozzy gets kicked out of the band. It wasn't like Ozzy was some, you know, some major huge riding high on the charts, you know, artist or anything. He was really a guy that most people were writing him off as like, all right, this is it for him. Another funny thing that, that comes out from the Dana interview is all these guys were coming and, and trying out and they bring their path stack, you know, they bring their marshals in and Mm -hmm. all this. And so when, when Randy shows up, you know, Dana's like, well, I'll help you get your stuff in. He says, no, I got everything right here. He brings a little pig nose amp. You know, and and I guess a few pedals or whatever. And Dane's like, why, why, why didn't you, what? You brought this in. Now it'll sound fine. And it just kind of shows you again, Randy wasn't really, he wasn't impressed, right? He wasn't intimidated at all. He wasn't even sure he wanted to do this, uh, which just kind of adds, adds to the irony. Darren, do you know, do we know other guitarists at that time that were trying out? Have you guys heard of any other? I know that I know that George Lynch came in a little. Yeah. Earlier. I don't know if he was before or after I, Randy. Well, I think he was before and after Randy. He occupied the same stomping ground as Randy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if he was in Don Dawkins' band or or what he was doing. I I think he was actually in a different band. John John may the, remember the Boys. I believe yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But and and so uh, so I think George Lynch did audition and and, and they must have, from what I understand, they. It must have given him enough confidence to think that he was close to, to getting it. Mm-hmm. But then I think when he came back, he had cut his hair and that was the kiss of death. No pun right. intended. Um, <laughs> Sharon one. said, no, it's not good for the image. They, you know, they, she like looked at him like aghast. Like, why would you do that? Why would you cut your hair? So that pretty much, that was the end of that. And I, I also heard something that she didn't like his, the guitar that he had, it had tiger stripes or something. And she, <laughs> she took issue with that, but she was basically picking apart things that were a part of his image. And I think ultimately that was the, that was the thing that kind of sunk George Lynch. I don't think it had anything to do with his playing or his ability. Uh, you mentioned Randy being an Alice Cooper fan and not so much black Sabbath or anything. I think it's also important to note that Randy was a big Mick Ronson fan. Yes. And he even kind of like his haircut. Yeah. His look. He even kind of had that Mick Ronson look, you know, and you, when you look at old pictures of, of the, the spiders from Mars, the Bowie era, when Mick Ronson was in the band, it's almost like, wow, that looks like Randy Rhodes. Right. You know, because Randy did kind of, cop that look for himself so so i mean image was obviously uh, also involved in this you know not only the the ability playing ability that that randy had but his image i mean he looked cool and he was a very i don't well he's probably what five foot five he was not a very large guy light yeah just uh, he probably weighed 120 pounds just a little guy i can remember on the tribute album the outtakes 
I, I would listen to it over and over because it was fascinating. The outtakes of them recording uh, D. Have you guys heard that where they like oh, a, pl- yeah, a plane flies over? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. in the middle of the plane. He goes, oh, yeah. there's a it's plane. A jet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or he'll screw up and he goes, oops, you know. Yeah. And it's like, it was just that humanized, you know, you hear an album and it's kind of detached from reality. But hearing those outtakes was really cool because you hear the guy actually talking and breathing as he's recording. I always, I always thought that was really cool. The other, the other thing that's interesting to me, again, Randy wasn't a Sabbath fan and he will tell you that. And people want to fight me in the parking lot. When I say this, you hear it when he plays Sabbath tunes, he's not into the Sabbath tunes. I would much rather hear Brad Gillis play Sabbath tunes than Randy Rhodes. Brad Gillis was a Sabbath fan and it shows. Mm -hmm. I just think Randy was not big on playing the sabbath songs and he played them because he had to right but uh he only played a few what two or three sabbath songs yeah Um, and children of the grave and paranoid that's that's yeah that's that's about it and and i think brad sounds better on the sabbath stuff than than randy and i don't want people to fight me when when i say that Uh, that yeah and it was a sticking point that right before randy died they were talking about Ozzy owed, uh, they had left Don Arden. Sharon was fighting with, with her father. Sharon is now managing the band. They have a falling out with Don Arden. This is also a tangled web of uh, this mess that when you read Bob Daisley's book, you know, Bob also plays into this too for many years to come this legal battle that he had with the Osbournes really started as a legal battle with Don Arden. Mm. But uh, to get out of this contract, they owed Don Arden a live Sabbath, an album with live uh, Sabbath tunes on it. And that was real something that Randy did not want to do. And it was sort of like a, they were at a standoff from from what I understand. You know, Randy was like, I'm not going to do it. Ozzy was like, we have to do it. And they were both just kind of staring each other down on it. And then unfortunately, you know, Randy passed away. So it was never, they never had to deal with it, but it just proves your point that, that he wasn't into black Sabbath. And in fact, there's some of one of the few like audio interviews with him. Uh, I think it's for guitar world or something. The guy asked him like, you know, what do you think of black Sabbath? And he just says something like, I'd rather not say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just I don't want to talk about it or I don't want to say anything. It's just not with never really my thing, you know. And yeah. he just leaves it. He just leaves it. At leaves that. it out there. So, so Darren, help me with the timing here because it's kind of weird. The band records Blizzard at Ridge Farm, so this is this is early '80, right? And then yeah, and and, and they 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 started UK tour like in August. The like before the album comes out, they're starting to tour album comes out was it september of 80 they tour they continue touring in the uk they actually recorded diary before they toured blizzard in the u.s isn't that correct well i i'm a little bit conflicted about this too because i had heard that well there's a few facets to this but basically the timeline is that it had been about a year from the time they finished blizzard the album was building in popularity. They were gaining momentum. Uh, I believe it was Sharon that suggested, look, let's go back and put another album out because, and at this point, 
there was some competition with what Black Sabbath was doing. And I'm not so sure if it was based around the fact that Ozzy was the former singer in Black Sabbath or it was based around Sharon and her relationship with her father, you know, and and his management of of Black Sabbath. But they were trying to keep pace with what Black Sabbath was doing. And, And I think that what I read, Sharon felt that it was a good time for the band to strike while the iron's hot, so to speak. So they went back in and recorded Diary of a Madman. And as you can hear, when you compare the two albums, the production quality on Diary is just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like there's there's more money that was put into it. Uh, I love the sound of Blizzard for, for what it is, but and it's got a lot of personality in some of its simplicity, but... Diary of a Madman when with the strings and everything, it, it just really capitalizes on some of the ideas and some of the personality of Blizzard of Oz. It really, you know, takes it to the next level on Diary of a Madman. It, it, and with regard to it being the same band, too, everybody knows that Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge were pictured on the inner sleeve of Diary. But at this point, I think everybody is well aware of the fact that it, they didn't play on the album. It was right. still Lee Kerslake and Bob Daisley. In, in the whole way that that came about was that Ozzy had wanted Tommy Aldridge to be in the band prior to Lee Kerslake even joining. But Tommy Aldridge was pretty occupied with Pat Travers. And at this point, Ozzy really hadn't made a name for himself. And mm-hmm. Pat Travers was pretty lucrative. And I'm sure that Tommy Aldridge was making a pretty good living playing with Pat Travers. Once Ozzy's career started taking off, and I'm not really sure, but maybe Tommy wasn't really that happy with what was going on with Pat Travers at the time, but he approached the Ozzy management uh, about whether or not the job was still available. And Ozzy, from that point on, wanted Tommy Aldridge back in the band. So through Sharon, you know, Ozzy said, try to get, Lee out and and Tommy in and uh, Sharon approached Bob and said, can you back us up? We need to get Tommy in and Lee out. And Bob's like, no, I Lee's my friend. He did a great job. There's no reason to, to fix something that isn't broken. So he was approached a few times and ultimately he, he stayed faithful to Lee and said, no, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to back you up on this. So the next thing is they were both out. Yeah. And then Tommy Aldridge was in. And I think at this point, Randy felt a little disoriented, uh, a little alienated in the situation. He now he had grown accustomed to his relationship with Bob and Lee. Now they're both gone and it's just him and Ozzy and this drummer that he doesn't know. So I think they bring Rudy in as a courtesy to Randy. So at least he has somebody that he can anger himself to that, that now he, he doesn't feel quite as alienated and, and, you know, stranded out here with a bunch of people that he doesn't really know. I mean, he, he's obviously worked with, with, with Ozzy, but I don't think his relationship with Ozzy was, was that strong, at least not as strong as it was with, with Bob and, and Lee. I think, well, you know, and Ozzy, Bob and Lee both say that, Randy was prepared to leave with them. He was like, no, I'm, this is BS. I'm not doing this, but they both said, don't, don't be stupid. Right. You've got a great opportunity here. You keep doing what you're doing. It's interesting in the Rudy interviews. I don't know if you ever noticed this about Rudy Sarzo. Rudy Sarzo will never say anything bad about anyone, you know, and he talks about, you know, how great 
Ozzy and Sharon treated him. He lived with them and he's very loyal to whoever he's played with. So you, you kind of get a different picture of Ozzy and Sharon from Rudy than you get from a lot of other people. It's just, it's just kind of an interesting thing. Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge both have appeared on the covers of two massively huge albums that neither of them played on, right? Diary yeah, yeah. and the White Snake album. You know, Rudy has to be the most on. confused. Like it's he's 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 on uh, Diaries, listed on the inside of Diary, wasn't on that. He's pictured on Metal Health, although he didn't play bass on three <laughs> yeah, or four of the about songs. That one. Yeah, he played bass on about half the record. Yeah, he's in the videos for White Snake, although he didn't play on that that right. White Snake album. The second Japanese Quiet Riot album has Rudy pictured on it, but Rudy didn't play on that. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of funny. I mean, he's a great bass player and everything, and you're right, he does seem like a super nice guy. But yeah. You know, just, uh, you know, he's just grateful for all his opportunities. He's just a real positive. So guy. I, I got to ask, I'm going to draw on your musical expertise. So Darren, for, for those of us that aren't drummers, how, mm-hmm. how does Tommy Aldridge differ from Lee Kerslake? I mean, are their styles that much different? Yeah, yeah, they, they are pretty different. Tommy is a real, he's a consummate double bass drum player. Mm-hmm. He really integrates that into his overall playing. I mean, there's some guys that play double bass, you know, and they'll break away from their singles and, you know, they'll do a little double bass run or something. But he really, he's the first drummer that I really saw that could syncopate his feet in with his hands. And it's, you can really see it on the After Hours video mm-hmm. and the way that he's playing the songs versus how we've heard them with Lee. You can definitely hear there's a marked difference between how Tommy Aldridge approaches those songs. Lee is old school, you know, in the style of like John Bonham, right. a little bit of Bill Ward, you know, very straightforward rock drummer. He's a, he's a good player. He's an interesting player. His fills are, are really good, but he's old school, you know, and yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. And for the style of music, it fit perfectly. Tommy Aldridge just kind of made the music, at least the, the drum parts, just a, maybe a little bit more modern. I have seen I have seen uh, Neil Peart live. I've seen Tommy Aldridge live. You know, I've seen, you know, a lot of drummers that people. My favorite drum solo I've seen live was Tommy Aldridge. And I love Neil Peart. Yeah. But that whole thing where he does the whole drum solo, then throws his sticks away and plays with his hands. Mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it was just, it was really awesome. Yeah. Yes. When, when I saw him in concert, I was I was really impressed by that. It actually John Bonham had done that, you know, ten years yeah. prior. But yeah. you know, being a kid, I, I wasn't aware. Like, of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't aware of that. So that, I was really impressed by that. I couldn't believe this guy's playing the drums with his hands. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, he was going. You know, he was double kick going. His hands were flailing. I mean, it was really, it was really. Yeah. He was a great showman. You know? Yeah, it was cool. So John, you're a bass player. I now correct me if I'm wrong. I believe Bob played with the pick. And Rudy yeah. didn't. So yeah. are there are there any things that jump out at you about the way Bob played versus Rudy or or just about Bob in general? As a oh, player? yeah. Well, yeah, Bob's one of my favorite bass players. And because of Blizzard and Diary and Bark at the Moon and Bob is a, is a you know, for me, Bob's sort of like a, and he'll say this. He's very influenced by Paul McCartney. He kind of has that where his bass sort of moves around and it really sort of. 
he doesn't just follow the guitar riff. He, he adds something to the song. If you think of the verse in crazy train, he's playing that do, 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 you know, that sort of syncopated thing. And it's really, it adds a lot to it. His bass lines and steal away the night and uh, uh, goodbye to romance. And it's just fantastic. And he has an amazing tone for the, for the blizzard album. He used a uh, SG, like a Gibson SG bass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually had a chance to ask Bob this. I sent him a message once and he replied to me. If you see any of those pictures of Bob recording the blizzard album, he has a white SG bass. Okay. Any other pictures you see of Bob, he has a, uh, like a, a maroon red SG base. Mm-hmm. And I sent him a message and I said, Hey, do you still have that white SG? How come I've never seen pictures of you with that SG, that white SG, except for at the recording sessions for Blizzard? And he said, Oh, well, when I, we went over to record Blizzard, uh, I brought my precision base and I wasn't feeling it. So uh, I really wanted my red sg base but we couldn't afford to fly it over from australia so i went to a pawn shop or a music store and i just bought that white sg base and he goes and i asked him i said do you still have it and he's like no he goes i sold it like soon as we were done with the record and he goes if i had known you know what a historic album that was going to be i would have held on to that base but no he's he's a great player he has a great the tone on on blizzard is just fantastic the bass just jumps right out at you and for me bob's like a sort of a hard rock heavy metal paul mccartney well and he's adding all these melodic walking lines and supportive lines and then on top of all that bob's songwriting his contribution to the songwriting cannot be underestimated it cannot be stressed enough how important bob was to the songwriting of the of the band and if people want uh proof of this uh, you can listen to, you know, a lot of these riffs that were on Blizzard, Randy was kicking around in Quiet Riot. Right. It wasn't until he got there with Bob. And Bob talks about how he, this is how he wrote with Randy, with Jake, and with Zach. They would sit on a sofa facing each other. I'd have the guitar player show me riffs, and we, I'd, I'd arrange it. I'd add some of my own riffs. And so Bob... Bob's contribution into in the songwriting department, and he wrote all the uh, lyrics right. on the, the first, like you know, so many uh, Ozzy records and on Blizzard of Oz. And like Bob talks about, Randy and, and Ozzy were messing around with "Goodbye to Romance," and he hears them in the kitchen, and he comes in and he goes, "Hey, that that's pretty cool." but those lyrics you have are just dreadful. He's like, you know, give me a minute. I'll, I'll, you know, and he goes and he writes the lyrics to goodbye to romance. And right. so Bob, not only as a, as a bass player, did he add a very unique thing to the band, but as a songwriter, it's, it's he was just super important to the, to the writing of those, those albums in blizzard. And he's, he's one of those guys kind of, you know, there's a few of them, right? Cozy Powell, Doug Aldrich, you know, these guys, and I don't, I don't mean it in a bad way, but these journeymen, I mean, they have played Rudy Sarzo, right? They've played with so many people. You see, you can see, watch Gary Moore videos. Hey, there's Bob Daisley. You know, you watch rainbow videos. There's Bob Daisley, you know, same way. He's, he's just a very solid guy. 
the last time Bob worked with Ozzy was on the uh, No More Tears uh, album. And Zach Wilde tells a story about how, you know, they had, uh, who was it, Mike Inez, I believe, in there. And it wasn't working. And they were bringing in other guys. And, and Zach tells a story. He goes, Ozzy was just constantly saying, we got to get somebody who sounds like Bob Dace. And then finally said to him, why don't you just get Bob Daisley? <laughs> and, and they did. They brought Bob in at the last minute to kind of come in. And he doesn't have any writing credit on No More Tears. But he Surprise. comes in and yeah. plays <laughs> bass because yeah. he's, he's just that kind of guy. He has, he's a real solid player. He adds to whatever the situation is. He just he brings something positive to, this, to everything he's pretty much involved in. Yeah. Yeah. So, Darren, here's a question kind of off the track a little bit. It, it pissed me off because I'm such a huge Tommy Aldridge fan, but Carmine, I think Carmine pronounces his last name a piece, but Vinny pronounces his last name Apathy. So Apathy or Apici. Apici. <laughs> so Carmine says they brought him in on Bark at the Moon because Tommy Aldridge wasn't cutting it, which... Again, I'm letting my personal feelings come in. I love Tommy Aldridge. Every interview, he's a humble, nice guy. Every interview I see with Carmine, it's talking about how great he is and how he he taught John Bonham how everything he knows and all this crap, right? So is Carmine all that as a drummer? You know, he's underrated, I I think. If you listen to go back and listen to the stuff he was doing in Cactus, I mean, you can you can hear stuff that, you know, in the timeline, John Bonham gets credit for it, but Carmine, Carmine Apiece was, he was doing some, some very similar type of, of, of drum licks and things that, uh, well, he was, he was playing a double kit, which of course separates him from Bonham, but he was also, you know, he was even doing a lot of the, uh, the same triplet patterns that, that John Bonham was doing earlier than John Bonham, or maybe in and around the same time, but clearly not influenced by John Bonham. Perhaps John Bonham was influenced by Carmine. We don't know. You know, but yeah, I when you listen to his playing, I mean his his patterns and his phrasing, his fills. I mean, he's a he's a great player. I mean, like take Evil for instance off of uh, Cactus Restrictions album. I mean the fills and the the timing. It's just it's really really good. He's a really solid rock drummer, but he's not just an, an in the pocket guy. He's he's out front. And yeah. look at his work on Young Turks. <laughs> so. So, or, or do you think I'm sexy? Yeah. You think I'm sexy. So, so in a cage fight, who's going to win Aldridge or Apathy? That's really what I need to know. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to say Tommy Aldridge. I'm going to say Tommy Aldridge, I, especially in, you know, maybe if you're talking about Carmine, a piece night circa 1971 to 72, but in 1983, I think you're going to put it between those two guys. Tommy Aldridge is going to come out on top. Actually, I'll be honest with you. Bark at the Moon is the album that I pretty much I'm not really into. Uh, mm-hmm. I just listened to it again the other night. Um, I have a hard time with that album. I think the production's a little over the top. I think the songs are okay. I don't think it's a very good follow-up to Diary of a Madman. But that aside, I wouldn't be surprised if it had something to do with maybe something financial. Maybe Tommy Aldridge wanted a little bit more of a piece of the pie and and you know they approached Carmine who was probably very likely out of work at the time and probably worked for maybe a little bit less but again that's strictly just speculation yeah well and thank you for entertaining my own little nerdisms on those questions (laughs) I I, and and thanks so much for coming on and we kind of just kind of went 
all around. We didn't dig into the songs, individual songs. I'm going to recommend folks check out your podcast, your last episode on the Into the Void podcast, because you guys really dig in details. I did want to mention one last thing that I had in my notes, and I didn't mention that Max Norman said, and that was Randy would double and sometimes triple track his solos. So I want you to think about that to me just boggles my mind. You think about the solos on this album and Randy would go back and play it again. And then again, sometimes note for note, I I can't, to me, that just blows me away that, that you could do that. And Max said, that's what he did. I mean, on all those songs, those are like double and sometimes triple track on these ripping guitar solos and that just blows me and it gives it a very unique sound if you think of like the crazy train guitar solo when he's like sort of climbing up because there's times where it's completely locked in and there's other times where it drifts just ever so slightly that's what gives it it this wide sound yeah it's awesome yeah, um, I, it, it shows that his, and, and John and I talked about this when we, when we did our Blizzard of Oz podcast, um, it, it shows how the solos weren't off the cuff. They were, they were phrased, you know, they were planned. And, um, and that was really important for me. And, you know, we were talking about Michael Shanker. You said that he's probably your favorite guitar player. He's, he's definitely mine. And then one of the reasons is because his solos are so melodic and, hmm. Within a so- his solos are songs within songs, and yeah. and Randy's solos are like that too, and they're like that because they're so well phrased. They're they're written, they're composed right. as if they were their own song within a song. So to think that how extraordinary and how incredible it is that he could go back and and play those over and over again, I guess, and not to diminish anything or take anything away from that, but when you have that and you have it so well structured and so well phrased in your mind, then you know where the beginning and the end is. And maybe it isn't quite so hard creating it to begin with is genius. Absolutely. Once you have it established to to play it over and over again. And I mean, I I have a ton of of bootlegs. I'm I'm not going to say I have every show from 1980 to 81. I, I, I know I'm missing a lot of shows from 1980, but I do have, I think most of the ones from 1981 and Randy's solos, I mean, there's very little variation yeah. from night to night or from album to live performance. I mean, they're locked. John, I think you said this on your Blizzard of Oz episode referring to Randy Rhodes. If not, I'm going to give you credit for it. Anyways, I think uh, you said the thing about a Randy Rhodes solo, and you can say the same about a Shanker solo, you can hum them, right? You can sing yeah. their solos, they're not just a flurry of notes and shreddy, you know, stuff. And some of that's cool too. But like you said, Darren, there's a, there's a point a there it's a composition within a composition. And I, and I think that's, that's why someone like Rhodes, Shanker, Gary Moore. I mean, I think that's what separates the men from the boys in my mind is absolutely is that ability. So guys, let's wrap this all up. In the grand scheme of things, in the history of the world, how important is Blizzard of Oz? Personally or to the world of music? Well, per- <laughs> really, really personally, I guess. Yeah. For me, it's a top three album because it hit me at that time, you know, 
Back in Black is what started it for me. Next was Paranoid and next was Blizzard of Oz. And like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if I trace back all the things all these years later that I love, A Tolling Bell, you got that in Revelation Mother Earth, mm-hmm. Classical Overtones, Mr. Crawley, Revelation Mother Earth, uh, melodic ballads, Goodbye to Romance, uh, technical but melodic guitar playing all over the record. You know, it's so many things just come back to Blizzard for me. So it's a... You know, it's a desert island disc. It's it's hugely important in my musical journey. Yeah, for me, I mean, it it literally it it changed my life. <laughs> uh, and, and that's no exaggeration. I had a lot of rock records prior to that. This was the one that just it really struck a chord. And I was on a I was on a mission from that point on. I became a huge Black Sabbath fan, a huge Ozzy Osbourne fan, and you know, that, that's been a large part of, of who I am. It, it put me in a situation where I wanted to play music and I've been playing music for 25 years. And, and uh, you know, John and I, you know, I'm 52 years old. John and I now set aside time once a month mm-hmm. to do a Black Sabbath podcast. I mean, that's all really it started. Like I said, I had never say die, but I didn't become a fan until after Blizzard of Oz. So from that point until the present time, I mean, I've been a devoted Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath fan, you know, even at 52 years old, I've never grown out of it. We still, yeah, you know, once a month, we still find the time to, to do this. Uh, it's brought me a lot of happiness. And, uh, you know, I, sometimes, you know, you hear things about people and taking hard rock and heavy metal music and, and going down a different path. I mean, for me, I, I it's just, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's enriched my life and I'm, I'm just really happy that I found it, it you know, as, as far as what, you know, the, the worldwide contribution to this music, I think Randy, I think his playing, I think these songs have gone on to influence generations of other musicians. I think a lot of guitar players, I mean, they have to, if, if, if they don't cite Randy Rhodes, I mean, it might, might be because they were, they're just a little bit too young, but even young guys that weren't born yet when these albums came out, I think that they were probably influenced by Randy or at least people that were influenced by Randy. It's like Jimi Hendrix. You know? Absolutely. Jimi Hendrix influenced Eddie Van Halen. So without Jimi Hendrix, you wouldn't have had Eddie Van Halen playing the way that he plays. I think Randy Rhodes is just as significant as, as a Jimi Hendrix or, you know, an Eddie Van Halen. He's one of the greats. If he had lived a little, little bit longer, who knows what, what he could have gone on to do. But, I mean, I think the music has also affected the uh, overall climate of what we're listening to today in some in some respects. Very well said. And, I, you know, there are three albums that that I have just – ground into my head we talk about knowing every nook and cranny and for me those three albums are blizzard 2112 and zz tops trace hombres those three albums guys i i could hear them in my sleep i wish i could say i could play them in my sleep but i hear them (laughs) you know uh phenomenal albums and i agree with you guys absolutely that blizzard of oz it always modulates between one or two. I go back and forth between it or 2112. Uh, today, it's my favorite album, right? <laughs> and and yeah. a very, very, very uh, important album. I want to thank you guys. This was awesome. And I, and I want to come up with more reasons to have you guys join the podcast. So hopefully you, that'll be okay with you in the future. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. 
A lot of yes, fun. Thanks. Thank you. It was a great time. Thanks a bunch, guys. And I'm, I'm going to wrap it up here. I want to thank everyone for listening. And I want to thank our sponsor, Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry. And we'll see you next time on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Oh, sweetie. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We're not ordinary people. <laughs> We're morons. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. <laughs>